0: Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Zach.
1: I'm Brynn, and we are very excited to have Mr. Jay Nordlinger join us here today.
0: Jay Nordlinger is a senior editor of National Review and writes about topics ranging from politics to human rights to the arts. Originally from Michigan, Nordlinger attended the University of Michigan before relocating to New York. In addition to his journalism experience, Mr. Nordlinger hosts the Need to Know podcast as well as the Q&A podcast and has written multiple books.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Jay. One of the most interesting things we've heard from other speakers on our show is the concept of inflection points, or points when people realize they needed to pivot, be it in their personal lives or in their careers. Hmm. Could you give us some examples of those points from your life?
2: I don't really know. That would require self-examination. <laughs> 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 I... Um... I find that the less I think about myself, the better off I am. Uh, inflection points, that's a fancy term. Well, I um, so you want to talk politics a bit? Uh, I, I can tell you that Ronald Reagan was a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. I started out very, very much disliking him. I was a bit on the left. That was in the early Reagan administration, and then he kind of won me over personally and politically. So I became uh, a Reaganite much to my surprise, and I was a Republican for a great many years until recently, although I still consider myself kind of Republican in my heart. So something like that, do you, is that an inflection point? Would that
0: qualify? Absolutely. Okay, good. And, and you said you were a Republican until recently. Uh, that's referencing the fact that you um, left the Republican Party after pre- uh, President Trump gained the Republican nomination. Isn't, isn't that true? That's right. Uh,
2: I didn't think that the Republican Party and I were a match anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: And and can we talk about that a little more? Because it, it seems um, uh, at almost all times in a in a two party system, and especially now with a polarized two party system, um, what's the room for someone who doesn't feel like they fit into a political party? Um, and and where does that sort of person interact with politics? Um, and and you do that really closely as as someone who writes on politics a lot.
2: Yeah. Well, I think you're allowed to be an individual and uh, vote for the candidates of your choice, um, argue for whatever position strikes you as best. Uh, you don't need to be a member of a party. I must say I liked being a member of a party. I, um, I'm not much of a joiner mm-hmm. in my life, but I did belong to a political party, the GOP, and I was very, very comfortable there. And I'm not, I'm not a very happy independent. I'm not one of those, um, you know, a pox on all of your houses, people. Frankly, I'd I'd kind of rather be on a team. I'm just teamless at at, at the moment. Mm -hmm.
1: So going back to um, your childhood or your upbringing in Michigan, I think a lot of people have the same political affiliations as their parents. So could you talk a little bit about how you grew from, you said you were more on the left and then you became Republican. Was that influenced by your parents and by the town that you grew up in? What was the political climate like Well, it was
2: very influenced by the town I grew up in. Uh, I sometimes call myself a backlash baby. That I, I, I rebelled. I, I was born and raised. I was born nearby, in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm-hmm. which is i I've said a small citadel of the left <laughs> in America, and uh, I, I breathed a left wing air, so to speak. And uh, there was a bumper sticker in town. It was very popular at the time, and you saw it on a lot of, you know, Volvos and VWs and so on. It said, "Question authority." And it seemed to me most people did not. They kind of went with the flow, and the authorities were all on the left. People tended to read the same things and think the same things and vote the same way, and there was some conformity, you know. And uh, conservatism was kind of a dirty word. But um, I did question authority, and uh, over time I gravitated to that point of view. Although, I don't know how deep into the weeds you want to get with this, but I do consider myself a genuine liberal. Mm But it's just in, in my time and place, liberals like me were tagged as conservatives and even right wingers. I mean I believe in limited government and individual freedom and the rule of law and equality of opportunity and equality under the law and a pluribus basunum and free trade and international engagement and democracy freedom, Betsy Ross, Apple Pie and the American
0: flag. That kind of thing. In that order. <laughs> well, I don't have to think about the order, Zach. Good good point. Um and, and Michigan is, seems to be a big part of your your life still. Um, one thing we do when we prepare for these podcasts is research all of the speakers who come on the show. Um, and in every one of the bios that we could find on you, it always said, um, Jay is originally from Michigan, but now he lives in New York. Um, is that distinction a big deal for you? Um, and how does that tie into your life right now?
2: Zach, it's interesting you should raise this. No one ever has. Um I don't want to be one of those wannabe New Yorkers. (laughs) um, There are people who moved to New York and they consider themselves Mr. or Miss or Ms. or Mrs. New York. Right. Right. I am. I'm a Midwesterner who lives in New York. People say when I go to other parts of the country or abroad, people say, where are you from? I almost always say I'm from Michigan and I've lived most of my adult life in New York. Mm. Um, because I think where you live is, is, can be different from where you're from. And so I just don't want to be – I guess my thing is I don't want to be a pretender. You know? I've lived most of my adult life in New York. But real New Yorkers, you can tell them.
0: Yeah. You know? That's true. And and what part of where you're from um, is, it, is a big part of your life? Is it the questioning authority that you found in Ann Arbor or is it is it something different than that? Well, that would require self-reflection. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bad I, podcast. I, 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 so don't, I don't,
2: sorry, I, I don't really know. I don't really know. We're all, what can we do about when we're born, where we grow up? What can we do about that? Mm-hmm. I suppose it stamps us somehow. But I've been lucky to have a, a great many experiences and a great many places and meet a great many people. And I think my reading has been pretty broad and you get out and about. And you learn that people pronounce different words funny. And, uh, you know, in Michigan, uh, the way we think of it, where you're from, no one has an accent, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody in Sudbury, Massachusetts have an accent, (laughs) Bryn? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I regret the loss or the evanescence of regional speech distinctions. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't talk like a New Englander, Bryn.
1: I don't. It's a dying breed, which is a little sad. Actually, my father um, had a pretty strong Boston accent before he went to college, but people thought that he sounded uneducated, so eventually he... I'm not sure if uneducated is the right word, but I think he was self-conscious, and eventually he lost it. And I think that's happening all over.
2: Well, there, there are a few things that have erased our speech distinctions. One is um, television, mm-hmm. and another is prosperity. People move about, and they don't live and die where they were born necessarily. And so this homogenizes our speech. By the way, is it Sudbury or Sudbury?
1: Sudbury. Gotcha. For me, at least. Okay. <laughs> So thinking about your transition from Michigan to New York, um, I've also noted that a lot of your more recent pieces for the National Review have focused on um, more countries outside of the United States, looking at Marine Le Pen and democ- democratic leaders in Russia. How did you start focusing on politics outside of the United States in addition to politics inside the United States? And what do you think is the value in looking at politics in the international realm as well?
2: I've, I've always liked politics. I've always liked the world, uh, learning about the world, different situations. I was one of those kids. I loved reading the newspaper. I don't know if you guys know what newspapers are, but we we, we used to have
0: them. <laughs> and and, uh, the, and it's the app on your phone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it. good <laughs> And
2: um, you know, some people like butterflies and bridge and uh, golf, and uh, I I liked. I like those things, too. I mean, I like butterflies and golf. I don't know about that, Uh, Bridge. Um, I liked foreign affairs. I liked international relations. Mm. I liked biographies. I'm curious. And journalism gives you a a license to to, to be nosy and to act on your nosiness. I very much like that about my profession. Uh, You're curious about a situation, you go find out about it.
0: Mm. And Sorry. Um, one of the things that you are nosy about is music. <laughs> um, you're, you write for the New Criterion, is that mm, correct? Yeah. Um, and you also go to Salisbury every year yeah. for the music festival. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your interest in music? And also, because um, it seems to me that you, that most people specialize in just one thing, um, whether that be political writing or music criticism, but you seem to specialize in both. Um, how did that come about and how do you balance the two of those?
2: I wouldn't like to do just one. I like the two. I wouldn't like to be all politics all the time or even all music all the time. I must say I quite like the division. I think of it really as a day job and a night job. Mm. And I'm a music critic at night and a political journalist by day. And um, what's, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I think all politics. I think I would, I don't, I'm glad to have the two. I'm glad to have the two, and I almost never mix them. Hmm. Every now and then, the boundary blurs because someone of the music will do something political. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I love the separate spheres. And I think that politics should, for the most part, stay out of the arts. And I think the politicization of the arts is something um, not so good.
1: I know it's hard to choose a favorite, but if you had to choose a favorite, what is your favorite or um, music review that you've ever written and why?
2: Oh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, um, I write about performances of, of all types, instrumental recitals, opera performances, orchestral concerts, uh, voice recitals. They're all different and related. I, um, I'm lucky enough, I write only about the top people in New York and elsewhere, so I can't hurt anybody, uh, which is very important uh, because I um, am—there's a wonderful expression that, as far as I know, William Sapphire came up with, the late columnist for the New York Times, Mm -hmm. kick them when they're up, not kick them when they're down. Mm -hmm. And so if I say something critical about a pianist or a tenor, I'm not going to be able to harm that person. He may not like it. But uh, he's established— already. So that frees me up. I wouldn't want to knock someone middling. And sometimes I've been criticized for, um, people say my reviews are too positive, some people say, Uh, but I can
0: tell you that those under review don't feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Um, I want to touch on something you just said. You said um, you can't hurt anyone, which is important. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And one of the and that presumably gives you uh, freedom to, yeah. to write what you want to write, yeah. to say what you want to say. Um, you, one of You the... pull fewer punches that way, I find. Right. But but one of the people you just wrote about, um, the proponent of democracy in Russia. Oh, right. Um, what, what was his name? Vladimir Karamurza. OK. I won't try to pronounce that. We'll, right. Let's <laughs> keep calling him the proponent of democracy in yeah. Russia. <laughs> he has been targeted a lot and he's not criticizing someone – well, he is criticizing someone who's, who uh, is – pretty much untouchable, um, Putin, um, and you, he's been poisoned twice. Yeah. Um, what did you learn while talking to him? What did you learn about um, speaking up when there's real physical danger um, and real mortal danger to, to your person? He's a
2: great man. Why do people do this? I've interviewed a great many people like this. I've interviewed many, many dissidents, former political prisoners, political prisoners to be a great many from all over the world, Why do they stick their neck out this way? Why do they risk so much? They usually can't tell you. They just feel compelled. Why do people do things they know will lead to their imprisonment and torture and possibly murder? Why? They can't tell you. They feel compelled. They also think, if I don't do it, who will? They're a special breed. And some of them, I think I'll go ahead and say this. Some of them are a little crazy which adds to their bravery. And this is not true of Vladimir Karamurza, who is stone cold, sober, intellectual from Cambridge University. And that's another reason I admire him so much. He could be doing anything. I mean, he could be teaching history in some comfortable department anywhere. Uh, But instead, he remains in Russia, in the democracy movement, and he puts his very life on the line. And I admire him greatly. And when I tell him this, he says simply, I'm just
0: stubborn now um, I, I want to talk about your ATH talk um, of course we're sitting above the Athenaeum um, um, recently you tweeted out about the ATH talk you said I'm going to be in Claremont I'm going to talk about the presence of free speech on campus um, and when I heard about it um, my, I was talking about it with my roommate and I were both uh, huge fans of the Athenaeum and we, to be honest we weren't very interested um, what more? Thanks a lot, Zach. A... <laughs> well, we we thought to ourselves, what more could someone say about free speech on campus? Yeah. Other than that, it's it's absolutely necessary, especially um, especially recently, um, and and I think that's something a lot of people, uh, a lot of CMC students, feel strongly. Um, but then on your Twitter feed, you said um, maybe maybe it's not um, something that should be on college campuses. Not necessarily free speech, but like. Um, let me make
2: it. Um, my talk is going to be about
0: politics on campus. Okay. Uh, that will include free
2: speech, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, but the main question I'll be addressing, and I'm sure I'll hop around, is um, should we have politics on campus? And what should, what should those politics look like? I'm for less politics on campus rather than more myself. Sure. Uh, I think colleges should be places of learning growing discovery. There's plenty of time for politics later. And you're just learning about stuff. You're doing your reading and building a foundation. I sometimes say building up a bank that you can make withdrawals from later. I don't think there has to be politics on campus. And I say someone who is a political nut, uh, maybe in more than one sense.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, But um, I think politics can be a poison on campus. Honestly, it can ruin Classroom experiences. It can ruin relationships. I think politics is something to be guarded against, Frank. I, I, uh, the older I get, the, 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 more I, the more I feel this way.
0: Of course, you couldn't have told me that when I was in college. My God, <laughs> I wouldn't have listened for a second to someone like me. And, and where do you see that transition being? I mean, presumably you think that people should get involved in politics eventually or should at least care about it. I don't even about... know if
2: I think about that. In, in a liberal democracy like ours, I think there's such a thing as freedom from politics. We're supposed to be a constitutional republic. I think we should run on a kind of autopilot or cruise control. Americans have the luxury of not being obsessed by politics. People in other are, countries are obsessed by politics because um, a change in government can mean a midnight knock at the door or not. And our lives, depending on who's elected, really shouldn't perceptibly change. Isn't that a wonderful, great, great?
1: So one of the interesting things to me throughout hearing you talk about politics in this interview and also in some of the things that I've read is that you seem to look for the more personal aspects in a lot of ways. And I think the best example that I can think of of that is your book about the children of dictators. Hmm. So I don't want to take this podcast a little too far down your um, feet tonight. So I thought I would ask you about this book in particular. Um, What was the impetus for writing this book about the children of dictators?
2: Many years ago, I was in Albania which had had one of the worst dictatorships of the whole 20th century, that of Enver Hoxha. It was a brutal, almost a perfect, hermetically sealed totalitarian state. And I asked someone, did Hoxha have children? Because I couldn't imagine being the son or daughter of such a man whose name was synonymous with oppression and murder and evil in that country. So he did have children. I wondered, well, what were their lives like? Could they go out? Did they have to change their name? How did people treat them? Were they spat on? Or did people sympathize with them? What were their lives like? And I thought maybe that uh, you could do a piece, a magazine piece on the Hoja children. And I'm a magazine writer and you're always looking for your next subject. <laughs> then it occurred to me, you know, well, I could do um, I could do a survey of such men and women and make a book of it called Children of Monsters. So I did.
1: What was the most interesting story that you found there? Or one of the most interesting, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's quite all right. The
2: most famous son or daughter of a dictator, except for those sons who succeeded their father as dictator, so the two of them in North Korea, one of them in Syria, one of them in Haiti, the most interesting son or daughter is the famous Svetlana Stalin, who defected to the West. And uh, I think, although she could be impossible, just an impossible woman, I think she is a Touching and admirable.
0: When you were writing this book, were you ever concerned about um, like humanizing the dictators at all um, by <laughs> by talking about their children um, and presumably like in a in a positive light as well? Yeah, they are human, Zach. That's the scary thing. Except for one.
2: <laughs> um, <clears throat> sometimes back when I was giving book talks about this book, people would often say, "Who is the worst dictator?" And I'd say, look, you can't rank them. They're all terrible. I mean, what are you going to do with Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, uh, the Assads, Idi Amin? But there's one who stands out, and that is Mao Zedong. And I'll tell you why. Forgive me for saying this, but Saddam you can kind of relate to. He was volatile. He was very, very human, all too human. He had great passions, great hatreds, so on, fits of volcanic rage. You can sort of relate to that. Mao was like a machine. He was utterly cold. He wasn't happy. He wasn't sad. He wasn't mad. He wasn't glad. He treated human beings as so much fodder for his political experiments. He was not quite human, and that I think is outstanding because of the, the, that chilling nature of him.
0: But when you were writing the book, and did you write about um, Mao's yeah. children? Yeah, um, were you worried that um, talking about the children of these dictators? Would... No, not really. No. no, I wasn't. I wasn't worried um, because. Uh,
2: they, they are human, these dictators, and and they're admired by a great many people, I'm sorry to say, and they always have some degree of popular support. That's a sad thing you learn about dictators is because you know when you're growing up, you think, well, some tiny group, some mob, some, 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 some cadre, right, uh, has seized control of this great country, and they're holding these people hostage, so to speak. And that's true to a degree, but all these guys— have a degree of popular support. And the same is true, I'm very sorry to say, of terrorist movements. So th- that is something I had to grapple with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you have any projects in the work for the future? This sounds like a really fascinating one, but outside of this?
2: Have- well, I um, so I do sort of daily journalism or almost daily journalism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I write a piece in every issue of National Review, uh, which is a bi-weekly. And I do my music criticism. So I've always got another piece... Uh, but I've written a lot about, as I said, dissidents, political prisoners, human rights champions, and I'd like to write a book, a, a survey of such people from all over the world, called "Brave Lives."
0: And that's about people who led brave lives. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Understood. We'll um, make sure to, to look out for that one. Um,
1: so finally, the last question that we finally is it over? Already?
0: Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. My we, gosh, time has flown. You we guys are <laughs> fun, wonderful
2: interviewers. We try to keep them bite-sized. I've barely cleared my throat. Go ahead. <laughs> it's the well, millennial attention You're so fan. efficient. You're so disciplined. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if you give a very extensive answer to this, who knows? <laughs> I'll keep it short. Um, our final question that we always ask our interviewees, um, as kind of a helpful guidance for college students our age is what's your personal definition of success? I think this might require some of that self-reflection and introspection <laughs> that you've been trying to avoid, but it would be very helpful for us and our listeners to hear what advice you might give to students when defining success in their lives.
2: Well, there's God, there's family. Uh, some people are lucky enough to be married and have children and grandchildren. And you never know how life will fall, but um, yeah, I, I think people will find their good and find the blessings. And I think it's okay to go. There's a noise house, that's not going to bother us at all, though. Someone not. may be vacuuming or leaf blowing or something sounds pretty powerful anyway I'll just keep talking because I'm so loud please do um I think people should go their own ways and follow conscience and uh you don't have to run with a herd and um I I, I think there's a great deal of happiness to be gained in helping others and, and contributing to others happiness um I find uh, that, that too much focus on self can lead to great unhappiness. I, I've seen this a lot and try to guard against it uh, in myself. So I don't mean to get all uh, uh, homily-like here. Hmm. Uh, I ain't preaching. But since you asked the question, that's what I would have to say. So now I guess you'd give
0: me the hook so I can be bite-sized. Yeah, well, we asked a lot of questions, and you gave a lot of excellent answers. And um, we want to thank you, Jay, for being on the podcast. I,
2: I wish I could enroll in this college right, right now with you. I would just love, love to go to school here. It's a kind of paradise.
0: Yeah, no, we, we're really thankful for it, of course. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again for joining us. And to all our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.